0: Now, you know what we should really do more as adults? This is something that's obviously for kids, but I found it really missing in my life, and that is hiding games. Hiding games. Like, okay, if, if I were to say after church, we're all going to do a group wide game of hide and go seek, wouldn't you be like, yes, I've wanted to, but like adults don't do that, Right. But who among us ha- hasn't, like, gone through an art museum and been like, that's a good hiding spot, right? Or, like, for Easter, right? I would love to go explore around a local park trying to find colorful eggs with goodies inside of them, right? Like, we, we don't have to pretend. We don't have to be like, oh, no, I'm, I'm an adult. I only care about business. No, like, let's, all right, I can see I've lost you. That's okay. That's Okay. I know, we just had Thanksgiving, it's upcoming Christmas, and you guys are like, why is he talking about Easter? Fine. But the point is, hiding and finding doesn't always have to be stressful, right? Kids love playing hide-and-go-seek. Easter egg hunts are super enjoyable. Hiding and finding doesn't always have to be stressful. It's not like losing your passport before a flight. Sometimes it's finding the perfect gift for someone at Christmas, or going to a restaurant and finding that meal on the menu that you just have the perfect craving for. Finding something that's lost doesn't always have to be stressful. There can be great joy in it. In our passage today in the book of Luke, Jesus describes the absolute joy of finding that which was once lost. He tells two parables one of a shepherd leaving 99 sheep to find one, and one of a, another woman finding a lost coin in her house. And we'll see the joy that occurs when they find what they were looking for. But that joy only occurs when you have the devotion and the desire to find what is lost. In our passage, we'll see the desire, devotion, and joy that Jesus has in finding what was once lost and bringing them to himself. The desire, devotion, and joy that he has in saving sinners you know you could tell a lot about someone by what brings them joy so let's read our passage today taking a careful look to see the desire that jesus has to find his people and bring them back to himself luke 15 starting in verse 1 now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him the pharisees and scribes grumbled saying this man receives sinners and eats with them so he told them this parable to find and teach sinners in verse 1. We see that Jesus has gone from dining with the Pharisees back in last week's uh, section in verse 14 to now welcoming tax collectors and sinners who have come to him to hear. It's worth noting that chapter 14 ends with Jesus saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then chapter 15 starts with, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Just as Jesus encodes those who want to listen to come, those who realize they need Jesus are the ones coming to Him. They want to hear, they want to know what Jesus has to say. The ones who want to be taught are coming to the one who wants to teach. But the Pharisees say that Jesus is receiving and eating with sinners. Now, the Greek word for receive here means kind of a, a welcoming acceptance. And the words for eating with implies like an association with, like eating together at the same table, being on familiar terms with. So the language that the Pharisees is using here isn't like Jesus happened to sit at the same hibachi table with sinners. And, well, I guess you're my adopted family for the night, all right? Let's just stick to each other's food right no jesus is the language is like he's welcoming them into his home eating with them getting to know them appetizers hot cocoa after the meal the whole shebang he's being friendly with them and these were people that the pharisees would never want to associate with people who did immoral things or had jobs that unfortunately hurt people like the tax collectors There were even rules in place during that time that rabbis shouldn't associate with ungodly people. And in the eyes of the Pharisees, the sinners weren't worth being with. And I'm sure that extended to them believing that the sinners weren't worth saving. In the eyes of the Pharisees, Jesus going against these rules and against the status quo kind of discredited him. They've gone from asking Jesus why he is with sinners in Luke 5, where they have that whole dialogue, to now just complaining that he's doing it, grumbling that he's doing it. To teach a sinful person was one thing. Pharisees loved teaching. But now to associate with them in such a friendly manner, that would be considered extremely dishonorable to the Pharisees. This grumbling is them doubling down on their pride, which Jesus taught against directly to them in last week's chapter. Now, we all know the difference between a good teacher and a bad teacher, right? The difference between lovingly taking your time to help someone understand a concept versus saying, Why don't you get it? and trying to force them to memorize it. It's the difference between encouraging curiosity versus shutting down questions that you know the answer to, so obviously they should know the answer as well. The difference, I would say, is an actual desire to see the other person learn, to see the other person grow in knowledge. Jesus constantly invites people to hear and then teaches those who show a willingness to learn. He has that desire to teach and correct sinners. But the Pharisees don't have a desire to truly teach. They have the desire to have... The status of a teacher. Back then, Pharisees and scribes, they were regarded with high honor because they were the ones with the knowledge, right? They were the ones that got the best seats at the table. As Jesus said in Matthew 23, the Pharisees love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogue and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. If you think back to your years of middle school and high school, did you ever have that one student who thought they were the teacher? They would constantly correct others and assume that they knew it all, even though they were more often than not wrong. But at the end of the day, they were still a student, and there was still a teacher who had the ability to hold them back or move them on to the next grade. Pharisees did not have the desire to be taught. They had the desire to have the honor of a teacher to be seen as better. And without the desire to teach or the desire to be taught, the Pharisees were lost. But unlike the Pharisees, we see in this chapter and in previous chapters in Luke and the rest of the Gospels that Jesus is extremely approachable. When he's not approaching other people, he invites other people to come to him. Throughout the Bible, we see that just like the sinners in this passage, we are encouraged to draw near to God and are rewarded with His presence by doing so. God is extremely approachable through Christ. Psalm 158 says, The Lord is near to all who call on Him, to all who call on Him in truth. The writer of Hebrews says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. And James writes, quite simply, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God loves to dwell with his creation. That's the way that things were originally in the Garden of Eden. When man was in perfect fellowship with God. But that perfect fellowship was ruined by man when Adam and Eve committed the first sin. It caused a catastrophic domino effect with implications to this day. But just as God promised in the garden and in the New Testament afterwards that he would make a way for sinful man to be reunited with God. And that's what we see in part of our passage today. Jesus Christ, God in flesh, came down to earth to dwell with his people and instruct them. Even though they were sinners, Jesus desired to be with them, desired to teach them, to lead them to repentance and back to Him. As Paul writes in Romans, God showed His love for us that while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, God died for us. Christ died for us. Even though those who were listening to Him were sinners and the Pharisees grumbling at Him were also sinners, jesus was there with them he came to instruct to love and ultimately to die in their place to atone for their sins if they repent that's a huge show of god's love and god's character he desires to be in fellowship with his people in fact in the upcoming parables that jesus shares with his audience we see that desire turn into devotion to bring back sinners to himself. So these two parables, as you probably noticed, follow a very similar structure. So we're going to read that first part of both of the parables first. So we're going to read verse 4 and then compare it to verse 8. Starting in verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Then skipping ahead to verse 8. Or oh, what woman... Having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. In both of these parables, there's a sense of urgency, right? Urgency and devotion to finding what is lost. But there's also care to these stories. These are personal items to those that have lost it. The man goes into the open country or an uninhabited place like a desert to go find his sheep. The woman searches diligently or carefully throughout her entire house to find the coin. It's worth noting that the Greek word in both of these parables that is translated to the English lost doesn't really mean lost in the way that we would associate with it. It means more dead or destroyed. This implies that the sheep and the coin are both really lost, not just with misplaced. And I think it's the difference between, you know, not finding your keys but knowing they're somewhere in the house because you drove home so they have to be there versus dropping your keys through the grate of the observation deck at the Grand Canyon. That's lost, right? That is dead and gone, lost, not just misplaced. So knowing that, What's interesting about both of these stories is how much risk is involved, right? The shepherd who is supposed to care for and protect his sheep leaves the 99 in the open country to go find one. And as that Greek word suggests, there's a huge chance that that sheep is already dead, especially since it's in the uninhabited desert. And the 99 left behind in the same open country, it's a huge risk they will be attacked when left behind without protection. It's a great sense of love and care that the man has for one sheep, that he would risk his own life going into the open country and the sheep behind just for the chance that his sheep could still be alive. For the woman, just percentage-wise, it's an even bigger loss as she loses one out of ten silver coins. The coin in this parable, a drachma, was about a day's worth of pay And this may have been sort of a bridal jewelry as ten coins were often stitched together to form like a bridal headdress. So let's just, for the sake of ease, say that she lost like her wedding ring, right? It's an important piece of jewelry to her. And since the old houses rarely had windows, the woman had to light a lamp to sweep the uneven floors, even during daytime, to try to find her coin. And not only is that precious oil in her lamp that she's losing but also time, right? She should be cooking meals or taking care of the flock outside or caring for babies or family. That's time that she's using. She also seeks diligently until she finds it, right? This isn't just a, I'll look until dinner or I'll look until my husband, the shepherd comes home. If he ever finds that sheep, they're they're not related. I'm I'm just saying. She's looking until she finds it. She's not just setting aside an hour to look. No, she is seeking diligently until she finds it. Failure is not an option for her. So we get that sense of devotion for both the shepherd and the woman to find what is lost. And then once they succeed, we see the reasoning behind that devotion. Look at the finales of both of these stories in verses 5, 6, and then 9. Verses 5 and 6 say, And when he has found his sheep, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Then verse 9, And when the woman has found the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Both the shepherd and the woman are so joyful about finding what was lost that they throw a party for their friends and neighbors. Can you imagine that? As a kid growing up, our our dogs would escape our yard from time to time. And when we found them, we we wouldn't, you know, invite everyone to come over, right? Or when I've lost my credit card in the past, obviously it's a huge relief when I find it, but I'm not like, everyone, come over, come on, we got to celebrate. It's not throw a party type of relief. I think the big thing to take away from those verses is that it's not about the money, the party that the shepherd and the woman throw since they invite their friends and neighbors probably cost way more than the sheep and the coin combined. Especially considering that the man has left his 99 other sheep and the woman just used all of the oil to sweep the house with the lamp, they have already invested time and money to find what was lost let alone throwing a party and spending more to celebrate. Both of them. Give the same justification to their friends and neighbors following the same template of rejoice with me for I have found the blank that I have lost. It's the finding of the item that was important to them. It was the personal value of that item, what that item meant to them that made it so celebratory when it was found. Of course, a sheep and a coin are important, but to that shepherd and to that woman, that sheep, and that coin were extremely important. And just so, we are extremely important to our God. We are his only creation that was specially made in his image. As we saw in the previous verses, he desires to have a fellowship with us, even though we have broken that fellowship with our sin. Just like the sheep sheep, or the coin, we are truly lost, dead in our sins, not just misplaced, lost. But John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Talk about devotion. Instead of loving one coin or one sheep, God loved the entire world. Instead of going into the open country or sweeping the house, God gave his son to us. Instead of inviting over friends and neighbors to celebrate, well, we'll see in the following verses what kind of celebration God has for one sinner who repents. Jesus, God in the flesh, loves his creation so much that he wanted to come back Into fellowship with us and give us a way to escape from our sin, which separated ourselves from Him. Not only did He have that desire to be back in fellowship with us, He had the devotion to see it through. The penalty for our sin is complete physical and spiritual death in every sense of the word, because we have broken that fellowship with our God. And Jesus came, He lived a life without sin, and then took that punishment for our sin on our behalf on the cross and the shame pain and death in our place and then rose from the grave three days later now whoever repents and puts their faith in that sacrifice by christ can rejoice that the penalty has been paid for and now they can engage in fellowship with god again and look forward to complete physical and spiritual fellowship in heaven after death first john 1 9 says if we confess our sins he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just like the sheep, we have gotten ourselves lost and need a Savior. The only way to receive salvation is to recognize that you need a Savior, that your sin, yes, your sin, I'm not talking in the general sense of the word, your sin separates you from God, but that His love and His sacrifice are more than enough to get you back. That's why the sinners gather to listen to Jesus, because they know that they are lost and need a Savior. And that's why the Pharisees are so lost, because they don't think they need a Savior. They believe that their so-called good works of the law are enough to save themselves from sin and bring themselves back to God. Now, I don't think that there's anyone in here today who believes that they are without sin. It's popular for people of the world to say, (laughs) nobody's perfect, right? So I know that we have all done things that have unfortunately hurt others or done the wrong thing. I know that I have. I think it's far more likely for someone like the Pharisees to believe that they are making up for their sinfulness with arbitrary goodness, hoping that they eventually do more good than bad but it's good news that you don't have to hope in yourself. You have a Savior, a Savior who lovingly desires to be back in fellowship with you, has a devotion to see it through even to the cross. Don't try to earn your salvation because it's not possible. Only Christ can pay that cost, and he lovingly did so on the cross. You want to know the best part? Listen to this. The best part is that no matter how much you desire a Savior, Jesus desires to save you more. He loves you more than you can ever comprehend. If you do not know this love, please, please talk to me, talk to Patrick. Anyone on the worship team would love to talk with you after the service and tell you more about this love of Christ. Ask them about God's desire and devotion to save His people. If you came here with a Christian today, ask them. It will literally save your life. Now, let's look at the finale to both of these parables in verses 7 and 10. And let's see the heavenly joy that occurs when when what was once lost is found. Verse seven says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And verse 10 says, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, these two verses are very similar and aim to show the purpose behind the parables, right? Jesus is talking about hypotheticals, but now he's bringing it back to real life. And he's saying that just as the shepherd and the woman celebrate over finding what was lost and bringing it back to them where it belongs, there will be joy in heaven over sinners who repent and come back to God. Let's look at verse 7 first. Jesus is explaining the parable that by saying that he is the shepherd. The sheep is the sinner who is lost in their sin, and Jesus is bringing that sheep back to him. That's him leading that sinner to repentance. And that 99 other sheep are righteous people who need no repentance. Now a quick note on that before we continue. We know that the Bible clearly teaches that everyone is sinful since the first sin in the Garden of Eden. Paul writes in the book of Romans, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus himself says in Mark, no one is good except God alone. So what is Jesus saying here about righteous sheep? Remember that Jesus is saying these parables in response to the Pharisees, right? The self-righteous Pharisees. And they are complaining that he is hanging out with the sinners. I believe personally that Jesus is turning the Pharisees' thoughts against them. He's using their own mentality against them. He's saying like, okay, if you think that you're so righteous, then why would I need to spend my time to seek and save you? Seems like you don't think you need it. If you don't need to repent over any sin, then we don't need to celebrate anything. If you don't think you need a Savior, then you won't get one. I think that he's saying no matter which way you spin it, he is correct in being with sinners, especially since they are lost and want to be found. He is perfectly okay with leaving the self-righteous sheep in the open country to go out and find the one sheep who is his. Not even their numbers can make them correct as one is saved, versus the self-righteous, 99. This many versus the few idea is even clear in an earlier parable by Jesus in Matthew 7. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. It's easy to be self-righteous and to reject a Savior. It's harder to humbly repent and understand our lossfulness. But those are the ones who are saved. Notice that these so-called righteous are missing from the second parable. Jesus really wants us to hone in on the main point. Rather than a response to the Pharisees, he wants us to hone in on there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, angels are extremely unique and interesting creatures. We don't know a lot about them. We know that they aren't floating babies with wings, so we can check that one off. We see in the Psalms that angels guard and protect God's people and obey God's word. They are his messengers. We see in the New Testament that angels are in heaven now constantly worshiping God and seeing his face. And even in 1 Peter We are very curiously told that angels long to look upon the gospel that has been given to us. All of that to say that these creatures of heaven, who are simultaneously God's soldiers, messengers, and worshipers, are filled with tremendous joy when a sinner repents and comes back to God. Isn't that absolutely incredible? Every time a sinner recognizes that they are in need of a Savior because of their sin and decide to turn away from their sin and turn back to God, there is essentially a huge party being thrown in heaven. And from what we know about heaven with uh, streets paved with gold and God himself giving off enough holy light so there is no need for a sun, I I bet that's quite the celebration. Notice that Jesus speaks in the singular tense, right? There is joy over one sinner. The angels don't just wait until 100 sinners. They don't wait till the end of the heavenly quarter. And if they had a good quarter of positive net sinners versus negative net sinners, then okay, let's have a pizza party. No, they are celebrating over each and every single sinner that repents and comes back to God. Christian, if you repented over your sin and came back to God, there was heavenly celebration because of you. Talk about our worth and our unworthiness, right? Each and every sinner who repents is worthy of joy and celebration in heaven because each and every sinner who repents is precious to God, just like the one sheep out of a hundred or one coin out of ten. That is because of the love that God has for his people, for his creation that was made in his image that was lost is now found. God Himself is so joyful when sinners come back to Him that He says, Rejoice with me, for I have found my child that was lost. God going down to earth in the human form of Jesus and saving His child is far greater than any rescue mission that has ever been attempted. What rescue mission has ever had the hero? spiritually bring the dead back to life? What rescue mission has ever had a hero, a God, come down, be humiliated on the cross, and die in place for those who do not deserve it? Remember that we were made in God's image, so the best parts of our life are but glimpses of heaven glimpses of God. The joy that we feel before finding when we find a lost passport right before getting on the plane is a taste of the joy that God feels when finding us. The joy we feel when we find our lost child in the supermarket probably in front of the toys. That joy we feel when we find them is a sliver of the joy that God feels when finding us. And that joy you feel When you finally find the man or the woman that you want to spend the rest of your life with and you kiss on the altar and are now found in each other, that joy is but a small percentage of the joy that God feels when finding his bride, the church. Our God is a God of intense love and joy towards his people and that is reflected in the joy in heaven over sinners who repent. God delights in saving his people. Do you you see the big picture here? Jesus responds to the Pharisees grumbling and complaining about sinners with joy towards finding those sinners and bringing them back to him. Remember that these sinners, I mean, compared to the Pharisees, they look like saints, right? But these are sinners. These are tax collectors who are taking advantage of the poor. These are sinners who have hurt other people. And the Pharisees, well, I think we know about, enough about them. But these are sinners. And Jesus is saying, I know you don't care for these sinners, but for me, I don't just care for them. I love them. They are who I'm here for. They're who I'm here to save. I left heaven, came down in flesh, and will die for these sinners. I will die die in their place. Just as a shepherd journeys into the desert or a woman sweeps the floor of her house, I will find what is mine and I will bring it back to me because I love them. There's a big difference between the heavenly perspective that Jesus has and the worldly pigeonholed perspective that the Pharisees have. Even though the Pharisees are meant to be those who have the wisdom of all things godly, that's who they are supposed to be, they cannot see past themselves and see the inspiration for heavenly joy right in front of them. What is happening in front of them is far greater than anything happening in the rest of the world during that time. God in flesh saving his child. If the Pharisees were to put aside their pride, they would see the beauty of humility in front of them, the humble sinner listening in repentance to their Savior. If the Pharisees were to stop worshiping a God made in their own image, they would see the little Son of God right in front of them. That's why they must be left in the open country as Jesus goes to save the one sinner who is his, the one whom he loves. In these 10 verses, we see God who came to seek and save his people, and we see two responses. The Pharisees who grumble and complain because they can't get past their pride. And two, we see the sinners who humbly approach their Savior with open ears, knowing that he is not only their best option, he is their only option to be saved. They welcome his wisdom. They seek his love, knowing that it is only because he sought them first. And as we conclude, I want you to see that these verses, while they include self-righteous Pharisees and while they include sinners, this, these 10 verses are about Christ and his love for us, his desire to save his people, his devotion to get it done, and the heavenly joy in his victory. In a second, we're going to sing All I Have is Christ. And this is one of my favorite worship songs. And this first verse, I mean, the chorus comes in a little late. These first two verses, I think, perfectly encapsulate our sermon today, and our text today. I once was lost in darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first... I would refuse you still.